want to tell you, one of, the, one of the things that I hear from people who might struggle, and, and here's one of the things I want to say just to start out with. If you're a person that would identify yourself today as struggling to have faith, struggle to, to exercise faith, to walk in faith, or what you, would, what you might characterize as strong faith, and I want you to know that you're exactly where you need to be uh, uh, coming to church. We're, we are not people who uh, have it all put together and have faith figured out. We, it's not like we've got God figured out. Uh, we know what he has revealed to us about himself, and we rejoice in that. We celebrate that. And if you struggle today, then God's character is what we are called to delight in, to find our peace, to find our foundation. And, um, and so if you struggle today, you might, you might struggle with something like, uh, like one objection or one uh, complaint or argument that I've heard voiced. Uh, and that you, Maybe you've even said this yourself. If the God of the Bible really does exist, then why don't we see the kind of miracles today that are recorded in the pages of Scripture. You ever heard things like that? If the God of the Bible really does exist, then why don't we see the kind of miracles today the way that we saw them recorded in Scripture? And first of all, I think if that's you or if you've heard that somebody pose that objection or ask that question, I think the first, thing, first way we need to respond is, well, who says we don't? Right? <laughs> Uh, that, that, that question or that, uh, that statement articulates that we know everything that's going on, and, and we really don't. We, we know actually very little. Um, and and the, the fact is, is that whenever we see a person healed uh, by modern mes- medicine, it's not like God has nothing to do with that. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that Miss uh, Priscilla Money and I talked about uh, as Coy was in the hospital was we, as we were going through the book of Proverbs and we talked about Solomon being a wise man and Solomon kind of understanding that we're called as human beings to tap into this wisdom by which God created everything. Well, you realize that's all that doctors do, right? Uh, doesn't matter if you're in R&D at some big pharmaceutical company or you are a doctor or a nurse, all you're doing is tapping into the wisdom by which God designed the human body and you're seeking to understand those processes so that we can call this normal and this sick. Right, And so it's, it's God's wisdom. And guess who's given those people the insight to, to bring healing through uh, vaccinations or, or through uh, antibiotics or different things like that? Well, God has. God is the great physician. God is the designer of the human body. And it is a miracle when somebody finds healing through modern medical treatment. That's a miracle. But you've you got to ask also, what's the purpose of miracles in the Bible? What's the purpose of miracles in the Bible? Well, Jesus himself said that the purpose of miracles is so that the glory of God might be revealed to the people who see that miracle. Miracles are all about revelation. And I want to tell you a a story just briefly to introduce 2 Kings to you this morning. I want to tell you a story that that puts on display these kinds of miracles and will will kind of set us up for uh, looking at, at 2 Kings. Uh, one of the testimonies that I've been hearing as a pastor is that over the last 10 or 15 years, God has been moving mightily among the Muslim world. Now, you're not going to hear that if you, if you watch the modern media, because that's not really their cup of tea. That, that's not what they're looking to report. 
But among the missionaries and the people who are on the front lines there, uh, books are being written, uh, testimonies are being recorded about miraculous things happening among people where there is very little or no gospel witness, no present gospel witness, where, I mean, just, just incredibly random events uh, that are leading to people asking questions, and those questions are leading people to have visions and dream dreams, and and things like what happens in this next story that I'm going to tell you uh, is happening. Imagine uh, you can close your eyes if you want to, but imagine a little girl, and uh, one day she gets uh, stricken with a certain illness, and because of that illness, she is confined to a wheelchair and eventually loses the ability to speak, and. This little girl is a real little girl. She lives in Pakistan. And while she is there in Pakistan, she is um, obviously in that kind of environment that she's in uh, with, uh, with some of the different uh, world events that are going on there, some of the different militant groups that have been, um, been active in that area. She goes and she witnesses, without the ability to do anything about it, she witnesses her 18-year-old brother killed right in front of her. A very strict Muslim family, and, and they believe she's cursed, the son's dead, the parents don't know what to do, the grandparents don't know what to do, so they end up at the local mosque. Well, many of you may or may not know that, that in, in Islam, Jesus is actually considered a great prophet. Now, there's some distorted information about uh, the specific nature of Jesus, about the, the sacrifice of Jesus, but Jesus is revered among Muslims nonetheless. And so one Friday, because that's their holy day, this little girl is wheeled into the mosque. And because of what happened uh, that day, she ended up there alone by herself. And she was, ended up on the floor because she fell out of her wheelchair. And specifically fell out of her wheelchair in front of this painting of Jesus. Because once again, he's a revered prophet in Islam. And it says that she, she looked at the paint, painting still being cognizant, and looks at this picture of Jesus and says, Why did you keep me alive? Saying this in her mind. Why didn't you just kill me? Why did you keep me alive so that I could see my 18-year-old brother dying in front of me? And she said her head was on the floor and she was crying. She says, Suddenly someone squeezed her shoulder and said, I kept you for something special. And she said she turned her head as much as she could. And in front of her eyes, she sees the person that she was looking at in that picture standing before her. And that at that same moment, she, she fainted. In the morning that she woke up, her grandfather woke her up, and he said, you fell asleep, on the uh, fell asleep all night on the floor. And she looked at him, and she, and she said, he was here. He was right here. And her grandfather said, who? And then he said, oh, my goodness, you're talking again. <laughs> and, he sa and she said, he was here. He was right here. Where is he now? And, and her grandfather said, who? And she said, this guy. And she got up and pointed at the picture of Jesus. He told me he kept me for something special. And she said, he, the grandfather said, sweetie, that's not true because he died a long time ago. Remember, I told you the story. And she said, no, I saw what I saw. And her grandfather said, wait a minute, you're standing up. This was the testimony that this Pakistani girl gave as she stood before her church and she confessed Christ in baptism, which is a very dangerous thing in, in that neck of the world. How do you explain that? How do you explain the fact that over a quarter of a million 
people across the Middle East, beginning from what was called the Arab Spring several years ago, beginning with the New Year's bombing in Egypt. How do you explain that ISIS fighters and radical Muslims and these imams who run these mosques, how do you explain when, I, when Iranians t- say that they have dreamed of a man dressed in white coming to them with these very biblical, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me type of dreams and visions and they submit their lives to Christ and the church is being built not, not through the evangelistic witness of Christians who have uprooted their lives and gone over there, but among the blood of the martyrs that has been spilt over there that cries out and that Jesus responds by saving the people who've killed them. This is happening. And once again, you're not going to hear about this on Fox or CNN or, or any of these other networks because that's not what they're out to report, but it is happening. God is building his church. And here's what's relevant for us today as we get into 2 Kings. God will not be left without a voice. God will not be left without a voice. He will reveal himself. And sometimes we can't explain that. All throughout the Old Testament, we have seen this office of the prophet. Different people throughout the story that we've seen so far called prophets are Abraham and Joseph and Moses and even, even Moses' uh, brother and sister Aaron and Miriam. Joshua, Deborah in the book of Judges, Samuel, Nathan, all have served in this prophetic office thus far. They've fulfilled this prophetic role. But now as Israel's story begins to take a turn, the role of the prophets will come to the forefront. And what we're, going to find, what we're going to see today is we're going to see Israel taken up to the point to where they are uh, put into exile. And then we're going to begin our journey uh, next week starting into the major and minor prophets. Because this is their time. But before we get there, we've got to see some of the critical changes in Israel that explain why the prophets took on such a prominent role. And so we're going to begin with this Sad story of God's people. Back in March, we began looking at the book of Kings. And remember what I said, in our English Bibles, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and 1 and 2 Chronicles were all just three books. You had the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. But in our English Bibles, they kind of cut them in half so that they'd be a little bit more readable. And so as we dealt with 1 and 2 Samuel, we dealt with those individually. But as we got to 1 and 2 Kings, because the wisdom literature books all kind of fell into the middle of 2 Kings, or uh, the middle of 1 Kings, we said, well, let's, let's do uh, 1 Kings and talk about Solomon, and then we'll come back and pick up where we left off after we do the wisdom books. And that's, so that's where we are today. And so as we finished that journey last week, what did we see about Solomon? Solomon was a very wise man. And wisdom is the thing by which you build a life that, that is successful according to God's design and according to God's dictionary. That's what wisdom is for. God gave us wisdom. God has revealed wisdom to us so that we can, uh, we can build a life that brings God glory. But did Solomon do that? No, like so many people who know a lot, it was Solomon's lot to know wisdom... But just like people who know a lot, Solomon didn't apply it to his own life. Solomon knew wisdom, but Solomon did not enjoy the fruits of wisdom because of why? 
because he disobeyed God. Remember, we choose to sin, we choose to what? Oh, come on, you knew better than that. Choose to sin, choose to what? Suffer. Suffer, yes. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. Happened to David, happened to Solomon, and it's going to happen to Solomon's son as well. His name's Rehoboam. Everybody say Rehoboam. I feel like y'all need to be woken up this morning. Okay, Rehoboam. Okay, so Rehoboam is David's grandson, Solomon's son, who takes over after he, uh, after Solomon. Remember, Solomon ended his life poorly, and now Rehoboam takes over, and it doesn't go well. In, at the end of Solomon's reign, Solomon had, had he looked a lot more like Pharaoh than he looked like his father David. He built his kingdom, expanded his kingdom on slave labor. He had married all of these women for political strategy. And along with, uh, along with, with the marriages came the, the religious dynamic of their pagan idol worship. And so Solomon's becoming influenced by all of these idols. And so his son, Rehoboam, takes over and he did exactly what children do. Okay, parents, you got this? Children imitate and intensify what their parents do. Right? Children imitate and intensify what their parents do. And so what did Rehoboam do? He imitated and intensified what he'd seen from his father, Solomon. And so because sin always separates, the nation of Israel undergoes this split right here. Under Rehoboam's leadership. Because there was a guy named Jeroboam. Everybody say Jeroboam. All these names, you're going to go off and name your kids and grandkids. Yeah, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He is the king in the line of David, and he's an evil man. And Jeroboam, who's not, you know, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes himself, he goes and he says, we don't like what you're doing. You don't have to be, you know, hashtag not my king. You're not my king. And so I'm going to go, and I'm gonna, we're going to split off. The ten tribes of the north are going to split off, and we're going to form our own kingdom. And so you've got the southern kingdom, which is typically called Judah. Everybody say Judah. Okay, they're the rednecks of the bunch, right? They're like us, okay? They're, they're in South Israel. All right, and then you've got the Yankees, the northern Israel, and they're just called Israel. Everybody say Israel. Israel. That one's easy, right? But in some prophets, like Hosea, they're called Ephraim. So you've got the northern kingdom, Israel, a.k.a. Ephraim, and then you've got the southern kingdom, which is Judah. The northern kingdom... Their capital is named uh, their their uh, capital is named Samaria, and then you've got the southern kingdom, and their capital is Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where Solomon's temple was, right, arrayed in all of its splendor and all of its glory. And Jeroboam says, "Ha, one temple. I'll do you one better. I'll give you two temples." And so he sets up these two temples, and right out of the book of Exodus, what does he put in those two temples? But two golden calves. Not starting well for the northern kingdom, uh, kingdom of Israel. And so you've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has ten tribes. The southern kingdom has two tribes. Northern kingdom is Israel or Ephraim, capital of Samaria. Southern kingdom is Judah, capital was Jerusalem. And so the book of Kings begins to tell us about each of the kings that reigned in southern and northern Israel, in Judah and in Israel. And so you get this chronicling or cataloging in the rest of 1 Kings and in 2 Kings of, well, this king was this guy, and he was this guy's son, and he did this. And they're judged on these three criteria. And there's about 20 kings for the north and 20 kings for the south. 
And they're judged by these three criteria. First of all, did they worship the God of Israel alone? Did they rid Israel of idolatry? Or were they faithful to the covenant? Which is why a lot of people think that it was a prophet who wrote the book of 1 Kings. He recorded the events of 1 Kings. Because those are his main priorities. Right? Did this king worship the God of Israel alone? Did they rid Israel of idolatry? Or were they, or were they faithful to the covenant? Okay, so you're at 1 Kings chapter 12. Turn over to 1 Kings chapter 15. 1 Kings chapter 15. All right. And this, if you're reading through the Bible and you get to 1 Kings and you're like, I don't understand why it's just like this guy did this and this guy did this, and then you move on very quickly to this guy and this guy, and this, you know, it's, I don't get this. Now you'll get it. Because what they're doing is they're going through and they're judging these kings by these three criteria. So 1 Kings chapter 15, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now it says, In the 18th year, the king... Uh, of, the, of King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was king where? Northern or southern? Northern, that's right. He was the Yankee, okay? Abijam began to reign over Judah. Judah was in the south, okay? Y'all are tracking with me. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem, capital city. His mother's name was Maka, the daughter of Abishalom. And he look at look at how he judges him. And he walked in all the sins that his father did before him, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as the heart of, of David his father. All right, now go to go to verse nine, chapter fifteen, verse nine. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam, once again northern king, Asa began to reign over Judah, southern. He reigned forty-one years in, in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Machah, the daughter of Abishalom. This is this is Abijam's brother, and Asa. Unlike his brother Abijah, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all the idols that his father had made. And then it records a little bit more about Asa. Now go to verse 25. Verse 25, same chapter. Now, and, and once again, this is where it just gets uber confusing if you don't get that this is where these two kingdoms are separated. Northern kingdom's called Israel, southern kingdom's called Judah. We've had two kings of Judah so far, right? Now, look at verse 25. Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, began to reign over Israel in the second year of Asa. So it's intertwining the timeline so that the reader can put together a timeline of Israel. And so in the second year of Asa, Jeroboam's son, Nadab, comes and reigns in Israel, which is the what? Northern, northern kingdom, okay, yeah. And northern kingdom, and look at verse 26. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which, well, which, made, which he made Israel to sin. And so 20 kings in the north, 20 kings in the south. Anybody want to take a stab at how many kings were righteous in the northern kingdom? Yep, zero. Prophets don't look too highly on the kings of the northern kingdom. But out of the kingdoms in, of southern Israel, if you're looking at your little handout there, right, in the, in the upper right hand of the graphic, it says that how many kingdoms, I mean, how many kings uh, walked with the Lord and got the approval of the prophets in the southern kingdom? Eight, right? So zero, they're 0 for 20 in the north. Those Yankees, right? They're just, they're just not, they're not cutting it. Now the southerners, right, southern Israelites, the, the Judeans, uh, they have eight kings out of the twelve who walk with the Lord. They fulfill their calling. But remember, this is all just setting us up for the ministry of the, of the prophet. 
right? Because God never leaves himself without a voice. Remember, that's the whole point of today. And so let's look at God's voice of truth. While the leaders of Israel were unfaithful, God won't be left without a voice. Therefore, 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings chapter 8. This is why I don't like the book division in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 17, all the way to 2 Kings chapter 8, these two prophets take over the narrative. Not in a, you know, kind of a... I mean, they just come to the foreground in the, narr in the narrative. The narrative begins to track with these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is this wild man, and Elisha is his young disciple. Now, they prophesied specifically to the northern kingdom and, and, uh, and confronted King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, the woman that, yeah, everybody says don't be the Jezebel, right? That's, that's, this is the part of, the, of Scripture where she comes into the, into the story. And so Elijah and Elisha were prophets. Now, what does that mean? Because here's where a lot of people, they, they think prophets are just like these fortune tellers, right? Walking around uh, with kind of a grudge on their shoulder and striking people down left and right. That was not their primary, or that was not their primary role. You see, they represented God to the people. That was the primary role of a prophet. They represented God to the people. They didn't speak what was up on their own minds. They never spoke on their own authority, but they, instead they just delivered a message God gave them. In fact, God was so dogmatic about uh, this office of the prophet and having true prophets in Israel that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 through 22, he gives these standards by which to judge prophets. And basically, if you are a false prophet, your prophecies don't come true. It's obvious that you're just speaking your own opinions. And Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, and 20 to 22 says, you take those people out and you kill them as a nation. They are to have no place among you, which should warn us even today about false prophets who exist still to this day. Not that we should take them out and kill them, but that we should not listen to them, as the New Testament says. And so this role of prophet was uh, a man or a woman representing God to the people by speaking truth in the Spirit. Now everybody, let's, let's venture over to the New Testament, 2 Peter, the book of 2 Peter, way far over in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, and we want to look specifically at uh, verse 21, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. What do prophets do and how do they do it? That's the question we want to ask. That's the question that Peter's going to bring uh, to the forefront for us. And that's also the way that we're going to understand the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and all these guys who are prophets later on. Okay, We want to understand what their role is who they are and how they're doing what they're doing. First Peter chapter, I mean, Second Peter chapter one, verse twenty. It says, "Knowing that first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Remember, it's not their opinion. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. That's no true prophecy. Okay, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of the coolest things, especially when we're looking at Elijah and Elisha." What's being described there in 2 Peter chapter 1 is not some kind of like 
spirit possession and all of a sudden their eyes would get glazed over and they would, oh, and they start speaking in you know the these words and somebody's like oh get a pen let's write this down that's not that's not what it meant what it means is that as this man or woman communed with the lord god gave them a message and it was their responsibility to take that message and go to the people to whom that message was prescribed and to speak faithfully that message and to depend upon the words of God to do the work. But their personalities were not overruled. Right? They were, they were still fully human, emotional, flawed creatures. Which is why when Elisha calls the she-bear out to maul these teenagers for calling him bald, you're like, man, that seems a little harsh, right? It's... <laughs> You know, it's like, that seems a little, that just seems a little far, right? These men were, these men were, were human beings, and yet the Spirit of God used their personality and used who they were to go and deliver a message. And it's important for the prophet to deliver a message, because we're going to meet a guy named Jonah, right, who gets a message from the Lord, and God calls him to go deliver it, and he does what? He goes the other way. Right? I look forward to going through the book of Jonah with you. And so, God never leaves us without a voice. Elisha, I mean, Elijah goes to Ahab and Jezebel, and in his uh, escapades, I mean, he's uh, against 450 uh, false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel to see whose who's God is real. He's in, uh, he's, he's going and he's on the mountain, right? And he's asking for the Lord to, to do this and that, and he gets taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven. And Elisha, his young disciple, takes on this mantle of the prophetic office, and he says, I pray that you would give me a double portion of the anointing you put on Elijah. And the prophets are very eager, the prophets who are writing First and Second Kings are very eager to show that God did just that because God's faithful. And so whereas Elijah has seven miracles recorded for him, Elisha has twice as many. He has 14 miracles recorded for him. And so Elijah and Elisha come to the forefront of 1 and 2 Kings. They prophesy. And in the coming months, we're going to be looking at their fellow prophet brothers, like I said, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. And what their primary focus is going to be is to call out the injustice and idolatry of Israel and how they are dis disobeying the covenant, how they're not living up to the standard of the covenant. And why does that matter? Well, why did God establish the covenant in the first place? This is what brings it into focus for us. The role of the prophet mattered because the whole idea of Israel submitting to this covenant was so that they could overflow the blessing, the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of God to the nations around them. But instead of Israel coming into God's presence, being transformed by God's holiness, they instead become, they go into the presence of the nations around them and, and they become transformed into and follow the culture of the nations around them. They, instead of overflowing God's blessing of the nations, they begin to look more and more like the nations around them. And there's all of these political assassinations in Israel that happen after the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and specifically in the northern kingdom. Because Israel has a problem that the prophets can only tell them about, but they can't fix for them. You see, king after king after king comes and goes. 
in the northern kingdom. Because there's a sin issue, there's a heart issue. And go to 2 Kings chapter, chapter 17. This is the turning point when things really, really go south. 2 Kings chapter 17, when Hosea reigns in Israel. Now that is the northern kingdom. 2 Kings chapter 17. And what we're going to see is the demise of the northern kingdom and the eventual demise of the southern kingdom. Now the northern kingdom of Israel goes first. In 2 Kings chapter 17, the Lord had, had told them, if you're unfaithful to my covenant, then the, you will be overtaken by your enemies and you will be sent out as exiles into the land. And that's exactly what happens because all, God always keeps His promises. We don't get to choose our consequences. We get to choose our actions. Because they didn't choose wisely, they chose death. And that's exactly what happens. The northern kingdom of Israel is overtaken by the Assyrians. Now, if you've ever struggled with how, okay, how did Israel get conquered twice, right? It's because the first conquering was the northern kingdom. They get overtaken by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians come, and there's this pause from chapter, I mean, uh, from chapter 17, verse 7, to verse 23. And what happens is, is that the prophet who's recording these events, he stops and says, now remember why this happens, folks. Idolatry, unfaithfulness, and injustice. Idolatry, unfaithfulness, and injustice had separated Israel from the promises of God. It had kept them from becoming the blessing that God had called them to become. Everyone was, was following their heart. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And that led them to walk on a path of destruction rather than a path of life. And because they chose these things, now God is allowing them to face the consequences of their decisions. And so the northern kingdom gets exiled by the Assyrians. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, you can go ahead and flip the page of 2 Kings 18, you, get, you meet this man named Hezekiah. Now these last three kings ruling in the south, two of them are righteous, and you know their names very well, King Hezekiah and King Josiah. But right there sandwiched in the middle, you have King Manasseh, and he is the worst king that Israel has ever seen. Now southern Israel has already seen northern Israel fall. Hezekiah thwarts off the Assyrians. Manasseh comes, and not only does he bring the idols of Solomon and all of Solomon's wives into the temple, but he also does something that I think shows God the maddest that he ever was at his children in the Old Testament. They, they institute child sacrifice. So think about how far we've come in the book of Kings. You had Solomon, the fountainhead of wisdom, the man who, who was, the, who, who, who was the, the promised king, God raised him up. Somebody who, was a, uh, who brought great wealth and great reputation on the people of Israel. And he built this glorious and grand temple. And now that temple is child sacrifice. That temple is corrupted and it's ruined. And therefore, even when Josiah comes along and he's cleaning out all the idols out of, that out of Solomon's temple, he finds that book of the law, right? He meditates on it. He, he, he institutes these sweeping religious reforms, but they're too far gone. They're too far gone. 
And the Babylonians come in, they destroy the temple, they destroy the walls of Jerusalem, they go and they exile the people into Babylon and all over. And in the final paragraph, go to the very last chapter, final paragraph, 2 Kings chapter 25. The final paragraph of 2 Kings, this shows that this book was written long after these events had happened. The final paragraph of 2 Kings zooms 40 years into the future, into this exile, to tell a very odd story about a, a man from David's line named Jehoiakim. And what the king of Babylon saw that he had a king of Israel in his uh, prison, he let him out of prison and tells Jehoiakim that you're going to eat at my table. This is the king of Babylon. He says, you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. Now that's significant. And we'll revisit this when we start going through these books. But when we, when we start talking about Esther, we start talking about Ezra, we start talking about Nehemiah, why should the, the insignificant Jews find favor among the people of Babylon, the people of Assyria, the people of Persia? Why should that happen? It's because they're still God's covenant people. And even though they've been unfaithful, God is the ultimate promise keeper. And what they intended for evil, God turned and used for good. Because God will not leave himself without a voice. And so, just by way of application, let me ask this question. I already went to that, sorry. Do we have prophets today? You can go ahead and turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 43. Do we have prophets today? Well, uh, remember, prophets are the rep God's representatives who speak truth. The most basic definition. God's representatives who speak His truth. Isaiah chapter 43. Many people, uh, W.A. Criswell, Adrian Rogers, um, the Keswick Convention, uh, Roger Olson in our own state, and uh, Stephen Olford. It's the guy I'm thinking about. Um, they, would, they would refer to the pastor as prophet. And they would say that as... as a pastor stands behind this holy desk. This is the kind of terminology they used. They'd stand behind this holy desk and they'd break open the bread of life and, and they would preach that word of life and call people to repentance that we would fulfill, we pastors would fulfill the role of prophet. And I, I don't think that's wrong. I, I think that's, that's very right to some extent because we are called to accurately handle the word of truth. We're called uh, to, uh, to, to preach the character of God to people. We're called to pour out uh, the, the covenant obligations, the expectations that God has on us as His people. Uh, we're called to, to uh, point us to the mission that God's given us. All of these ways, we are, we are very much like prophets, we being pastors and preachers. However, when you look in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 9 through 11, look at how God describes where the uh, redemptive story is headed. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 9 through 11. And all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Talking about the character of God and the plan of God. What God has done. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say it is true. Verse 10, God speaks and he says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Now let's... Let's, let, you can underline witnesses and then underline servant. Why is one plural and one singular? 
And I think this points to the reality that witnesses is plural because the, you have many, many Christians throughout the world. But then you have a singular servant because the church is one body. And so we are all his witnesses and we are all his servant because we are the body of Christ whom I have chosen that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. So who are the witnesses of these things? Who's the witness of what God has done? Who's the witness of the character of God and of the fact that God is the only Savior? Is it the pastors? No, it is the church united. In the individual Christians that make up the church, we are the witnesses. We are the prophets who speak truth into our culture. We speak truth to one another. We represent God as we walk out of this place. We disperse just like the Hebrew people in exile. We go to our own homes. We go to our own workplaces. We go to our own schools. And we are the voice of God as we speak in line with the revealed word of God to every person around us. Don't miss this. This is worth the price of admission today, okay? This is, this is what God is saying to us today because God has already said he's never going to leave himself without a voice. So when we say who are the prophets today, we're saying who speaks God's voice today? And let me tell you, we are selling ourselves short if you say it's just me. Lord, I hope it's not just me. In this community, or Randy, or Teddy, or the other... Lord, I hope it's not just us, these, these feeble, fickle men with clay feet, these, things, these guys we call pastors. Surely not. Surely not. No, it's us. It's the collective we, the church of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Most High. We are the ones who are meant to speak about the character of God. And to testify to His goodness and His purpose, no matter what station of life we are in, no matter what segment of this community we are in, we are called into that place to put forth His truth, His beauty, and His goodness. To put it on display through the excellence of our lives. We are called to, to, uh, called to point out unrighteousness. That's why this past weekend you had all of these Christians signing petitions and calling their leaders about this little boy in uh, the UK who's dying, who they've taken off life support because the British government is essentially telling this, this, these parents that, hey, you don't have control over your own child and it, you know, th things would go really better if you just change your attitude about him dying and us not giving him medical treatment. Right? And so you get all these Christians crying out and saying, that is injustice, that's injustice, that's injustice. Pointing to the unrighteousness in our society and pointing to the brokenness of our culture. You see, the reformation, the redemption, and the restoration of our world begins with us. And so I want to end today just by giving you four questions that you can ask wherever God's put you. And I hope you will take these and I hope you'll think about your context. Think about the people around you. The numerous places that we split up and go to throughout the week that God is calling us to be prophets. Here's how you can be prophets, where you, where you are. Here's how you can be witnesses. Ask this question first. What is good in this culture that I can promote, protect, and celebrate? What is good in this culture that I can promote, protect, and celebrate? It's not like when we go out 
that we're a doomsday prophet. Everybody's evil. All y'all going to hell. Like that's we we kind of have that street preacher prophet mentality that that's what we're supposed to be. No, no, no. Start with what's good. What's good in the culture of your home, your workplace, your school that I can promote, protect, and celebrate. It's already present. I'm just affirming it. That's good according to God's design. Secondly, what is missing in this culture that I can creatively contribute? What is missing in this culture that I can creatively contribute? Can I tell you that one of the things that's missing from a lot of, a lot of the cultures that you're in, and that I think a lot of you are already contributing, is excellence and integrity. Excellence and integrity have just gone out the window in the modern day workplace. And so do you want to know how you can be a prophet <laughs> in your workplace? Just be excellent. Just just be ethical. You you just you just be what God has called you to be. You follow the work ethic that you know you should have. What's missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute? Third, what is evil in our culture that we can stop? What is evil in our culture that we can stop? Listen, more than likely, there is abuse. There is uh, just not just foolishness, but destructive thought patterns that exist where you are. It could be in your home. Once again, it could be your school. It could be your workplace. Those destructive thought patterns, that foolishness, that, that path of destruction that exists there... Remember, ideas have consequences, but bad ideas don't just have bad consequences. Bad ideas have victims. And so there are so many people in our world today who are being victimized by some evil ideology that we need to stand out against. Some of you need to run for political office for that very reason. You need to speak out against the evil in our culture. You need to take your Christian conviction and you need to go into a place of leadership and you need to say, this is the Lord's. And this is how he wants us to live. And by God's grace, you will be an agent of restoration and a prophet in that area. And that could be what God wants, you to do, wants to do through you. That's third. What is evil in our culture that we can stop? Last question. What is broken in our culture that we can restore? What is broken in our culture that we can restore? So uh, for... Uh, there's tons of examples, but... For probably four years, maybe. And Tanner and I, we've worked closely with the Judson Association. And uh, others, Ms. Mr. David Peterson, Ms. Helen Kitchen, we, we go out there. Uh, they, they do more than I do. Uh, and, uh, and help. It's a thrift store ministry, right? It seems pretty meager. Uh, we think not making an impact. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we're like, yeah, you know. Maybe not for us. But one of the things that God has brought me into is he, I go out there uh, every third Tuesday morning. And uh, third Tuesday morning of every month. And I go and I serve in the counseling room there when people come and they pick up food. Now, I hate the idea of state-run welfare in the sense of it being abused. I, I, I just, that, that really, I, I get angry about that about the abuse of that, that system. And yet I recognize that it's needed for a lot of women and children who have been abandoned by, by cowards and worthless men. I, I recognize that it's, it's very needed uh, in a lot of those places. And yet, as I sit in this counseling room, 
one of the things that I'm stirred beyond words to see and to want to be able to answer is the brokenness of the family. Family. It, I, 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 it's rare. It is a rarity that the person sitting before me comes from what I would call biblically a stable family. Stable just being mom, dad in the house. When I, when I am sitting there, I am stirred to, in some cases, a godly anger, not towards that person, but stirred towards wanting to be engaged, to call out what is evil, and to say, this is how God restores that which is broken. This is how God restores the family. That's just me. But every single one of you, God wants to use to stir in you about something that is wrong in our culture. And He wants to use you, your background, your perspective, your giftedness, your personality to address that. He's gifted you with certain things in your past. And He wants to use you to speak life and to model godliness and righteousness and wisdom into that place. But we cannot do it if we only think that the pastor is the only one who does ministry and he's the only one who speaks the truth of God's Word. The only one who, the, the, the deacons are the only ones who speak truth into uh, our church family. Or they're, the, they're, they're the leaders. We're the followers. You know, the, I, the, I'm, I'm the shepherd. You guys are the sheep. No, no, no. We are the sheep. And Jesus is the shepherd. And we're not called to do anything but to follow His leadership wherever we go. It's not just about today. It's not just about Wednesdays. It's not even just about the ministry that takes place here on the church campus. Those are great. But the way that God wants you to be a prophet, the, the, the person that God is raising up in our culture is you. It's you. And the way that you... Find your place is by asking these questions and committing to know his story and speak truth when you see it and pray for the people around you and love them, love them, love them enough to say something. To love them enough to be engaged, not just to go to work, punch the clock, and look forward to the weekend. It's, so, it's about so much more than that. This is my longing. This is my prayer for what God would do for us as we go and we participate in New Orleans is that hey Jacob throw me that thing that's beside you no other thing yep throw it to me that this would be just one example right of how God can redeem you think about the foolishness of this right plastic bags I mean are you kidding me are you kidding me and this is what the world's saying at us you guys Abbeville <laughs> little dinky church down there in the armpit of Alabama right I mean, what? really? Listen, God wants to use the foolish things of the world, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he wants to use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I don't know about you, but I feel pretty foolish sometimes. I feel extremely weak most of the time. And if that's where you are today, then you're right in the place where you're ready to receive and surrender to God's truth. I'm praying that God would take what we've committed to do in New Orleans to reshape our perspective about our own community. Because if we can devote time, energy, effort, talent 
for people six hours away from us? What about the people six blocks? Right? And what does that even look like? And guess who God's going to give the vision to? Us. Us. And so my prayer for us today is just that we, we, we give this open-ended surrender, this yes, Lord, to whatever it's supposed to look like in the future. And if you're not able to go on this New Orleans trip, if you're, if you're, if you're unable to go with this, and you're, maybe you're not even able to be involved with us on the, on the front end to try to prepare for it, that you would pray with all your heart and that you would look for these opportunities because, once again, God wants to use you where you are. God is calling us through His truth to respond to Him today just in this way, to ask those four questions, to be committed to His truth, and to flesh that out in our daily lives. You are the witnesses. And so let's be unleashed to go and be agents of restoration and redemption in this world. Let's pray together.